Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, we're going to be hearing about what do we know and what should we do about the future of work, which is written by Melanie Sims, who's a professor of work and employment at the University of Glasgow. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This uh, is, is, is a great book. Um, it's the kind of book you can read in an afternoon. It's just this really short, really punchy introduction to almost kind of hundreds of issues that we're going to be dealing with now and in the future uh, when we think about work um, in terms of economies and and societies. And there are lots and lots of questions um, that come up in the book that I think are, are, you know, really kind of important things to talk about. But I'm very interested in in the book itself. Um, Academic books tend to be, shall we say, quite long. Uh, They, you know, often aren't pitched uh, you know, kind of general readers, whereas this, it struck me, was a, a very concerted attempt um, to, to kind of introduce a series of, of quite complex topics and debates. And I'd be interested to know about the series, uh, what do we know and what should we do about uh, before we start talking about your book in particular. Great. Well, Chris Gray, Professor Chris Gray at um, Royal Holloway is the series editor and Um, He uh, has previously had a track record of writing some really interesting, very short introductions to key topics. So you might be familiar with them. They're they're quite small. They're relatively inexpensive. um, And they're a really good um, way of someone often aimed at students sort of to pick up, to give them a really good, quick introduction to a particular topic, but quite academic and definitely kind of it's their primary aim of that series um, is is student audience. Here, we're trying to do something a bit different, which is to talk to people who have maybe read about particular debates in the media or read about, uh, seen a programme about uh, a key thing or see, been thinking about a key topic. And we're trying to bring the expertise of social scientists and say, what can social science tell us about those topics so that we got a kind of more informed debate? So there's one, the three, we launched with three. Uh, One was the future of work, one was inequality, and one was immigration. And there'll be others over time. And they are aimed at students, they are aimed at academics who are not in the field, but they're also aimed at the general public and policymakers and anyone who's kind of been reading about those things or been thinking about those things, hearing about them on the news and wants a more kind of extensive but not too heavy introduction to the topic. Also, the what should we do about is really important in this series. So Chris was keen to push us as authors to really think about, well, if you in your summary of what you what we know about the future of work or what we know about inequality, what we know about immigration, what should we then do if we were if we were policymakers? What what where should we focus our actions? What should we, what should we be thinking about doing in the future to try and address those things in a way uh, that creates better outcomes? Which is quite an interesting challenge. I mean, the the perfect illustration of that is how the book opens. Um, so 
I, I suppose most of the time we might think about work as like your job. Um, but actually you open with the distinction of paid employment work, trying to kind of challenge what, what we understand by that. And again, you do this in, and I think a really uh, succinct and, and really sort of, um, understandable way so it'd be good to to sort of unpack that idea about what are we actually talking about when we talk about work well what what we mean generally in the in the field of work and employment we 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 think about work as a sort of the efforts that we put in uh, to a whole set of activities so you can do voluntary work or you can do work in your household to clean the house or whatever and paid employment is then a subsection of that kind of work so paid employment has a number of quite distinctive uh, social, economic and sociological features. Um, and we generally talk about uh, the selling the capacity to work rather than actually our labour. So when we go to work, we're selling the time that we're there and we're getting money usually in exchange for that. But in that process, we need the organisation to direct what we actually do. We need them to tell us how, what activities to do, how hard to, they want us to work, what kind of quality they want us to work, etc. And that process is management. So we need to, when we're thinking about paid employment, we need to think about the process of management, which is ultimately a, a social process. And that's why social science has quite a lot to say about those kinds of things. And usually when we're kind of managing, when we think about the process of management, we're thinking about the the things that that manage our time uh, so the the, the, the activities uh, if you're working in a production line is the most obvious example so that the pro- product the process is going along at a particular pace there's a set of activities you have to do but there are analogies in other kinds of service work as well um, but also the, the the people involved in that so there's a manager usually telling you uh what's good, what's less good about your work, reviewing your performance, overseeing your performance, those kinds of things. So it's all those complex social processes that go into paid employment that you tend not to have in other forms of work. So that's what makes paid employment interesting. There are then some sort of blurry boundaries. So if you do an unpaid internship in a workplace where everyone else is getting paid, but perhaps you're not, you're gaining experience, that's obviously in a blurry boundary. Um, and we, we there aren't that many of those kinds of people. So when we think about them, we tend to, to put them in a particular category and think about them sort of separately and recognise that they're, they're neither voluntary work nor paid employment. They, they've got characteristics of both. Um, but generally, for most of us, the way we make our money is by selling our labour power and then the structures of the organisation and the people within the organisation direct that work um, towards whatever end they want. And that's a very particular, very... Uh, very particularly interesting uh, set of things to do. And and it raises some real questions about how that may change in the future. I guess the other thing that may change in the future is who is actually doing this stuff. Um, And one of the things the book is quite useful on is is giving us a sense of who is working and what do they do. Uh, And obviously, you know, that this has changed over time not just in the British economy, but um, in, in lots of different uh, economies across the world. Uh, and so I guess the kind of, you know, the, the sense of how things might change in order to understand that we have to understand 
So who is working and what are they actually doing? One of the points that I make in the book, pretty much throughout the book, is we tend to get obsessed with change. And actually, it hasn't changed quite as much as uh, a lot of us kind of think on face value. So we talk a lot, for example, about how um, the, the, the increase in women in the workforce. There has undoubtedly been an increase in women in the workforce, UK workforce, since about 1960, when laws changed that allowed a lot more women uh, to participate. So you know, from the sort of early 20th century through to the mid 20th, 20th century, we had a set of social and legal changes, which, for example, uh, removed what used to be a marriage bar that meant you couldn't work as a woman uh, in various occupations after you were married. And that went away. And with then with the um, equivalent, with the introduction of the uh, various gender equality acts, um, we had more of a legislative underpinning to actually facilitate women moving into the labour market. So kind of unsurprisingly, we've seen quite a lot of more women in the workforce uh, since the 1960s than we did in the period roughly from the 1920s to the 1960s. But women have always worked. There have always been an awful lot of women in the labour market. And we tend, if we talk too much about the change, I think often we sort of forget that actually there have long been women in the, the labour market. Um, actually, the biggest group of women that's, that's entered the labour market is women who have children. Uh, so what those laws have done is it's facilitated women who have children re-entering the labour market after they've had children. That's great. That's that's really interesting. Um, but it, other women have long been in the labour market and we'd be kind of ignoring the to ignore the continuities I think is really dangerous and particularly when we're thinking about the future of work I think if we focus on all the changes that have happened for example since the 1960s and then look at the future of work we get too obsessed with the idea that everything's going to change tomorrow and one of the things I'm trying to argue in this book is that actually there have been a lot of consistency there's been a lot of continuity over really long periods of time 100 years 150 years and so we kind of a bit too obsessed with the idea that everything's going to change tomorrow. It's far more likely that a lot of things are going to stay really quite similar, which is not to deny that there has been change. Women, we've seen a lot more uh, migration into the UK labour market, again, underpinned by social and legal changes, for example, around migration and around uh, particularly our entry in, into the European Union. Um, but these, there have always been migrants in our, our, our labour force and there have always been UK workers who've migrated to other places to do their work. So we need to not get too obsessed uh, with change. And we do always need to remember that there's an awful lot of continuity. That's one of the key themes that I've been trying to convey in the book. I suppose one really obvious um, site for continuity is the way that work shapes people's identity. Uh, and obviously in Britain, you know, we have this... Uh, obsession with social class uh, but you know o- other uh, countries are you know stratified in in various different ways that are bound up uh, with work and, and occupations uh, and I guess has that been a um, a fairly constant thing uh, when we understand work that work shapes our sense of who yeah, we are it is and, and I think that goes back to this key starting point that that work is it is an economic process there is a legal exchange there is a contract of employment the social aspects of work are super, super important, and particularly social aspects of paid employment, which is largely the, the focus of this book. 
Um, and so if we think about our place in society, if we think about how the how we craft our identities, what, what people ask us when we go to parties, what people, what the taxi driver asks you when you sit in the back of his taxi, he'll often be asking you, "What do you do?" And we are, as a, as societies, not just as this society, we we are as societies, are often very interested in what people do uh, with their time and. If you are in paid employment, then an obvious answer to that question is to describe your job. And we know this because people who are unemployed or people who are primarily in the domestic space often find it really difficult to answer that question. They, they, they often struggle to, to reconstruct their identity uh, after those kinds of changes. Um, and so we are very we're often looking for those social clues and they're often clues about hierarchy where where do we think someone fits in the hierarchy uh, status those kinds of things but also just curiosity um, and certainly one of the reasons i'm i'm studying the, the world of work and employment is because i'm endlessly curious about what happens to people in that 8 hours 10 hours a day that they sell their labor to their employers it's such an unusual curious thing to do it's endlessly fascinating to me but i'm a bit of a work and employment nerd so i mean what one uh, element of work and employment nerdery if if i can call it that is what new jobs um are there and I'm quite conscious of that kind of theme of, of continuity, and we we can say that there have always been services um, in both, you know, the, the British and, and the global economy. But sort of it, it later on in the book, you, you pick up on these new, I guess, new kinds of service jobs, um, doing things like emotional and aesthetic labour. Um, the, the idea of kind of um, manual labor being maybe replaced by robots or, or, or being being automated and i think that trend of uh, maybe emerging forms of service labor is is particularly interesting both um i guess from an academic uh definitional uh point of view but also i guess in terms of people's everyday lives and their experience of what their jobs are whether their jobs will continue to exist and what their jobs might look like in the future yeah, and again, this balance between continuity and change, I think, is is really important. So, one of the ways that the UK uh, economy has changed is that we're still an enormously important producer of goods. There are we still do produce an enormous amount. If you look at the league tables of um, of, of producing countries, we're, we're always in the top ten, and we've long been in the top ten. What's changed is how that how those goods get produced. So instead of the heavy labour of individuals and so you know, grafting away on a production line to produce cars or computers or pasties or whatever it is, um, that's now increasingly automated. And that's been a long, long-term trend since the 1960s, 1970s. What that's done is it meant it's meant that we've kept a very high profile in the the goods that we produce you know it's still a very high gdp uh, contribution of, of of manufacturing but it's largely automated now so the jobs in manufacturing tend to be uh, high high quality jobs around servicing the the production line setting the computer programs for the production line making sure the production line is working as efficiently as possible and there is there are actually relatively few jobs producing that very high uh, volume uh, of of products 
So where have the jobs gone? The jobs are largely now in service work. And if you think about uh, most people are in their family, you know, the, the jobs that their, their friends and their family will be doing will be typically in, in retail, hospitality, uh, teaching, health service, those kinds of jobs. Those are all service jobs. Anyone who's worked in the service sector knows how challenging it is to work with people because ultimately that's what you're doing in those jobs. Even if you've got a job behind the scenes, maybe uh, your, your customer is still really or service user is still really important. And interacting with people is a really challenging thing. And in many respects, it, it requires more uh, effort, certainly more brain effort than working on a production line. And so when we're serving someone in a shop and they're very, very upset with us and we're trying to calm them down and focus on what will help solve the problem or focus on how they can have a good experience, there's an awful lot of effort going in from the from the service worker who's on the front line uh, to try and uh, reassure that customer, to try and in, you know, help find a solution to their problem. They're having to think very creatively in that interaction. They're being paid often less, certainly not much more than the equivalent manufacturing worker might have been. But the effort that they're being put, they're putting in is very different. It's not their muscles, it's their emotions, it's their skills, it's their people skills, it's their ability to resolve problems and conflict and deal with conflict and those kinds of things so what we're doing is is very different what we're doing as a population working population sort of day to day is actually really quite different than it was in the 1960s because of what the kinds of jobs that are available in the labor market are so that's what we call emotional labor it's all that emotional effort in dealing with dealing with people the messy business of dealing with people so that has definitely changed um we've also seen uh that uh, those jobs are predominantly female jobs so it's very much more likely that women are in those front frontline service uh jobs in uh, in most areas of the economy um and sadly i think uh, a lot of those jobs are really not very well paid for the effort and skills that those people are, are putting in and i think that raises some really big political questions <laughs> about why uh, but those jobs were, have always been there um, you know if you look back to victorian times shop workers were were a huge category of employees they were predominantly women they were they were doing service work in the same way they were performing their emotional labor in this very similar ways so those jobs Although there are a lot more of them, they've they continue. You know, they are there is a lot of continuity even there. I'm particularly interested in in that comment you made about pay, uh, and obviously, you know, we, we know pay and uh, demographic characteristics such as uh, gender are, are closely interlinked. And one one of the things the book raises is the question of um, if we are seeing more automation, more forms of flexible work if particular skills are undervalued, what might be ways of kind of paying people? Um, and I was interested in, in this idea about universal basic income as a, as a potential new trend to deal with the fact that uh, seemingly um, in our unequal uh, economy, um, there are, you know, kind of underpay um, quite severely across parts of the labor force. Um, and you know the kind of inability of people to sort of ba uh, meet their basic needs. So where does UBI fit into this? That was one of the hardest sections of the book to write because the 
wide debate about various forms of universal basic income, to use a generic title for a whole set of quite complicatedly diverse policies and policy ideas, um, to synthesize that down into about a thousand words was one of the hardest sections of the book to write. I, I personally think that the, 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 the prescription of a universal basic income is actually a prescription for a problem that doesn't exist. Um, so the idea of universal basic income is that if we're facing a future where paid employment is reducing in volume um, in our economy, so there are going to be there, there might be fewer people working. We still need to keep up consumption. Uh, we are ultimately still living in a, a capitalist society, and therefore there needs to be a, a, a different mechanism for allocating financial resources. And that one mechanism could be for the state to drive um, an allocation of a, a basic income that's enough to live on, um, and then. To, to its citizens, usually defined as, as citizens in most of the experiments that have happened. Um, and then people can choose to, to seek paid employment to supplement that or, or not. They could have a, a basic uh, standard of living if they didn't. The premise of that argument is usually that, that something will happen that means that jobs are actually destroyed and whole jobs. And I don't think that that's very likely what I actually think is more likely is that tasks within jobs will change. So perhaps you work in a supermarket and you work on the checkout and that becomes increasingly an automated job. There, clearly, the job of that cashier, the tasks within that cashier's job are going to change. They're not going to be doing, there's not going to be as much demand for people who are scanning uh, your, super, your supermarket shopping. Some of that will be done by the customer. That doesn't mean there are not going to be jobs in supermarkets. And it, it doesn't, we don't know how many jobs there will be. You know, there are all sorts of ways of organizing a supermarket, many of which might mean that if labor is freed up from scanning the, uh, the, 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 the the shopping at the till, then actually the, those people can be freed up to do other tasks and you can reorganise the tasks that are needed to run a supermarket um, and you can you may still need the same amount of people. We just don't know. So it's not obvious to me that automation, the, the grand change of automation that we're certainly seeing to some extent will necessarily lead to a destruction of jobs. I think much more likely in the immediate sort of 5, 10, 15, 20 year time horizon is that we'll see changes to tasks within jobs, which will require organisations to think more innovatively about how they organise work, what tasks they put together into a job that they advertise to, to be filled. But that's not the same as saying all jobs will disappear. Now, there's a big debate about that. So that's my personal reading of, of that literature. And if you believe that, then a universal basic income is is not solving the right problem, if you like. Um, I do try and give the idea of a UBI a, a, a sort of good hearing in the book, and I, I, I try to be as balanced as possible. But I genuinely think it's kind of looking at the wrong, it's a solution to a problem that I don't think is the most likely uh, outcome. What I personally think is more likely is if you get this sort of need to change the tasks within jobs, What's happening at the moment, it's certainly in the UK, is because we've had 20, 30 years of 
workers' voices at work being undermined and uh, and and really not given workers not being involved in the way that work changes. People are very anxious about this, and that's a real anxiety. It, I'm not dismissing that anxiety in any way. It's a very honest anxiety. And a lot of this anxiety about the future of work comes down to the fact, I think, that workers' voices haven't been heard in these debates. So then if you move on to the what should we do, if you start from that perspective, UBI isn't really the right answer. UBI is another sort of top-down, imposed potential uh, solution. The real answer, I think, is to strengthen workers' voices in that process. And if you look, for example, at the NHS, where they've had a huge amount of automation and a huge amount of task reorganisation within jobs, what they've very successfully been able to do is think much more innovatively about how jobs are organised, uh, what skills you need, who who has those skills, where you need to reskill people. And they've done that in discussion with their worker representat- representatives, which in the NHS is usually trade unions. So they've negotiated those. Their workers have been part of that conversation. That's not to say every worker is delighted with every outcome, but it does mean that there's a more balanced approach to working out how these changes play out for all of us in, in our workplaces. If you don't have worker voices, you will inevitably, I think, get this level of anxiety that we're now experiencing in our current debate. Uh, And that is the real problem with the future of work, in my view. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be uh, my next question, actually, is like, so what what should we do? You know, you mentioned um, the need for, I guess, worker voices, uh, organisations, in particular unions, to, to, to facilitate that. Um, what what else should we do about this uh, kind of new set of challenges that we're seeing with with work, not just automation, but but also other social changes and then longstanding problems, things like regulation enforcement. How do we think about the self employed? What what should we do about the future of work? Well, and I I think that that sort of hit my my previous answer really hints uh, very strongly at, at what, what what my prescription is at the end of this book, and it's really about strengthening the multiplicity of interests and voices in the future of work debate. So how do we get forums and and discussions and negotiation points where we can really, as a society and as a company and as workers and as managers, have sensible conversations about how this plays out? So within policy terms, what does that mean? That means, for example, strengthening uh, trade union representation and, and putting in the, the, the underpinnings so that um, w- trade unions, we can't blame trade unions for the fact that they've declined. That's been a, ver- a function of a very direct attack from the state. So there's a lot of work needed there to, to sort of help them uh, work in a more um, more uh, benign environment, at least, if it, or perhaps supportive environment. There's a set of activities to then help enforcement. So it's very difficult. We do have workers' rights, obviously, in, in the UK. It's very difficult to enforce those. It's difficult to enforce those through tribunals. It's difficult to enforce those through trade union representation. It's difficult to enforce them through, uh, even through if you work in a sector that's covered uh, by some of the, the, the very specific labour regulations like, it, like in agriculture. So 
we need to sort of strengthen those institutions of enforcement as well. It's all very well having rights or having negotiated something that you actually need to be able to deliver that. And unions and inspectorates uh, need some teeth. So one of my recommendations is to sort of bring that all together. So there's a real kind of cohesion, a policy cohesion um, in labour rights uh, and labour rights enforcement uh, as policy areas. And then more generally, I think we need to rebuild uh, an understanding that organisations can legitimately change our work, that, that they need to. Things change, things, you know, new technologies come along, new bus- business models come along, but they need to do that in negotiation and in discussion with the other people who are involved in this very strange employment relationship. And so they need to be negotiating this, not just imposing it. And I think if we could move to an assumption that these things will change, but they'll change in a way where there's a negotiation and a a solid hearing of all the sides involved and a negotiated outcome, I think we'd be in a lot stronger position. And the whole process of the ways work may or may not change in the coming years will be a lot less scary for a lot of workers, but also for a lot of managers and politicians and policy experts in this field, because you know that the outcome is then negotiated and to some extent agreed on by the parties. And what about the future of Professor Melanie Sims? What are you going to be doing next in terms of, um, I assume, you know, more kind of work-related projects, but um, are you thinking about a future book or something completely different? Probably not a book at this stage. My my top in um, my top area of, of work this year is that I'm working, I've got a secondment to the Scottish Parliament, um, and I'm going to be working with employers in Scotland to look at exactly this question. So if we were to start to think about having forums where employers and unions can come together and other interested parties, but usually those are the two thought of as being the two social uh, partners, um, if we if we had stronger forums for that, what would they look like? What would be acceptable? What would be not acceptable? How can we get the voices of employers and of unions involved in the policy making process much more so that we can have sensible negotiated outcomes? Now, I don't think I'm going to achieve all of that in a year, but my, my job this year is to go and talk to a lot of employers uh, around Scotland uh, about where they see their interests and how they see this process um, and how they're, you know, where they see um, themselves as wanting to engage in that broader policy environment.